Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Jeremy Fisher. He's the CEO and co-founder at River. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing at River is very important and very kind of timely with all the craziness that's been happening over the last couple of months and years. Um, but maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. I grew up in New York, both okay. in the city and in Westchester. So have, cool. have stayed local. Very cool. So you went to university. What did you take and why? I studied philosophy and okay. I also was quite active on uh, the debate team. And those both ended up being quite helpful for, for what I do now. So the type of philosophy I studied is called analytic philosophy. And it really is pretty math oriented and, and logic oriented. So it's really helpful in terms of thinking about an issue or problem from, from multiple different perspectives and imagining new possibilities. And I think those are really interesting capabilities to develop early on if you're going to be an entrepreneur and then debate of course being thrown into a situation where you have to take either side of an issue means that you have to be able to look at things from multiple different angles again and be very quick on your feet and and adaptable and and well read and all of that sort of thing and so i think very much i was attracted to these intellectually because it aligns with how my brain works already. And I think I was very attracted to these kind of deep philosophical questions and trying to understand more about what life is about, why we're here, what's important, and be able to cogently think through those sorts of, of questions. And what we built at River, I'm only kind of now making this connection, but I think very much uh, is is connected to some of that philosophical and, and debate training. Interesting. No, that, that makes some sense now. Like I've obviously played with the app and, and whatnot, and we, we'll dive into that in a few minutes. But um, okay, so you get out of school, walk us through your journey and coming up with the idea for River, and then we'll dive into what exactly it is. Sure. So I started out in finance. I was working at Morgan Stanley and I started in 2004 as an intern and then worked there through the financial crisis. So left in 2009 to start my first startup. And I had moved out to, to the Bay Area and was working in Silicon Valley and started this entrepreneurial journey there in, in 2009. And the company that I ended up building and, and selling to Yahoo 
was called, we had a product called Days, and we were the first to come up with this idea of 24 hours of sharing forward chronologically. And that's evolved into the stories format that we're all familiar with in no, Snapchat and in Instagram. And one of the things that we were trying to do with that product is respond to what we saw was a lack of context in social media. And so at the time, people were sharing one moment from their day max, right? It was that Instagram post, and it was really about the highlights of your life. And we were wondering, well, what's going on around that? How is that moment situated in, in the rest of your life and felt like it wasn't really representative. And so days for us was about bringing context back into that conversation. And that very much after we sold the company led us to what we've built at River, where we started thinking about how we consume real-time information and notice that there was a similar lack of context there because just like was the case in social media where people were sharing a, a moment from their day out of context, people were sharing single viewpoints out of context, right? So an right. article from one publisher or another, and it was often impossible for people to understand whether that article that they encountered in their feed was a consensus opinion, an outlier, misinformation, et cetera. And so one of the things that that led to is warning labels being slapped on, on content on these big platforms. And that felt like a Band-Aid to us. And we thought that there was a better way to address some of these issues if you could situate that view alongside all the other views about that same topic, then the consumer would be able to recognize whether this was an outlier view or whether this was kind of the standard interpretation of something that had happened. Right. No, that, that makes sense. But then what made you actually decide to build River and actually go for it? So, well, one, we thought that this was a, a huge opportunity to, to build something that felt considerably more modern. Okay. And, and maybe I'll just take a step back and, and sure. talk a little bit about what River actually does, which is to instantly organize everything that people are talking about online, whether that's sports or science or gaming, and whether that's happening in the Times or on Twitter or TikTok or elsewhere. And we take all of that and organize it into a personalized stream of bite-sized shareable stories. And right. the key thing here is that while news is certainly a very big component of what we do, it's not just about traditional news. We really try to serve new information on any interest, whether that's beauty, gaming, et cetera. And so you might think of what we're building as, as an interest graph and core to all of this is giving people the ability to triangulate multiple perspectives in order to build trust. So with that said, why we built it, A, we, we thought there was a huge opportunity. Nobody had really built something like this that felt like it felt, we wanted to build something that felt much more similar to something like TikTok or stories than 
a news aggregator, right? So we wanted it to be immersive. We wanted it to be visual. We wanted this to be a product where people could get information without it feeling like they were doing homework, right? To create an enjoyable experience that was also going to be really informative and to respond to what we saw out there, which was this real lack of context, which had all these negative downstream effects. And we felt that some of the technologies around machine learning and, and other related technologies had gotten good enough that we could utilize them to bring this context back into that conversation. And, and we thought that was a really important, important mission at the end of the day. Sure. Like, as somebody that's used the app and as a designer, like the app is beautiful. Like it's well laid out, like it's the interactions and the flow is is really nice. But but I'm curious to know then, how do you make sure you guys aren't spreading that misinformation? Because if you're pulling content from Twitter and other kind of platforms where you let anybody post anything, it's got to be tricky sometimes to make sure that you're actually posting real news. Yeah, so... That's, that's definitely key. So one of the things that we're able to do by virtue of going out and, and crawling the web and crawling these different platforms is we're able to, so what we don't do is give you this one document, this whether that's a tweet or a video or an article that is about something that nobody else is talking about, even if that that single tweet has become very popular, for instance, okay. right? Okay. So the first thing that we're doing is we're going out and we're ingesting all of this stuff. And as things get added to our system, our system is asking, is this the seed of a new story or does this tweet, video, article, belong alongside these other tweets, videos, articles about an already existing story. And we're then able to say, okay, this story is relatively important relative to others based on who's writing about it, the number of different publishers, the credibility of those publishers within the topics that they're publishing on and the topic that that, that, that story is about and so forth. And so we're able to use all of those signals to figure out, A, is this story itself an important story? And then within that story, how important is this tweet, video, or article, right? And so we're able to use those sorts of signals to really effectively determine whether something is going to be relevant or important. And we're also downstream of all the platforms that we're pulling this content from. So anything that they're doing to combat misinformation, it has to get past their filters first in order for us to pick it up. And so we get to benefit from all the work that's being done upstream of our service as well. Got you. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. That's interesting. So then how do you, like if you're covering, I don't know, a, a breaking news story or something or any news story really, how do you decide which source gets shown first compared to second, third, et cetera? So for the listeners, just to, to be clear, there's no human deciding which order the, these, these sources are going to be presented in. This is all utilizing technology to try to answer some of those 
hard questions. And we're looking at all of the signals that I just mentioned. So there's a couple okay. hundred different signals that we're looking at, but to give a concrete example of, of something that we try to do is first we say, let, let's take the example of, of an article. We say, what's this article about? What are the people, places, ideas, concepts that are present in this article? So you might have Trump and North Korea and election are all concepts and, and people and places that are that are in this article. And we try to, using models of the language that are represented in that article, figure out which of those are relatively more important. And then we assign that article a topic. So we'll say this is about politics and world news, let's say. And then we look at who published that article. And we look at signals that are like, how many times has that publisher been linked to by other publishers? And how many times have the publishers who link to that publisher been linked to themselves? And we do that on a per category basis. So we okay. try to say, okay, the New York Times has been linked to a lot in world news and in politics but much less so in wrestling or MMA fighting. Okay, and so we'll use that to say, the New York Times is a very credible publisher for XYZ topics. And maybe Rolling Stone is a very credible publisher for these other topics. And Joe Rogan is a very credible publisher for another set of topics, right? Based on Got those you. types of signals. Okay. And so we're using those to figure out, okay, we know what this is about and we know who wrote it, the individual, and then also whether that individual works at a publisher. We know the, the place within that publication that that individual tends to get published. So are they writing stories that frequently appear in the most important sections, like the front page of a newspaper, for right. instance? And we try to build this map of all of those relationships across the entire internet to really figure out what's important from a topic perspective and, and who are the important publishers and use those signals to rank uh, be between them. Interesting. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. So then how do you guys basically monetize the platform then? Well, at the moment, we don't monetize it. We're really okay. focused on building just a phenomenal user experience okay. and something that people find really fun to use and, and enjoy using. And, and that monetization question is something that we'll focus on at some point down the road. Sure. Well, the other thing then that I think ties into that is you guys have an interesting take on um, people's privacy. Do you want to cover how you guys handle that? Yeah, so we we approach this from a couple different perspectives. One is that we wanted it to be really easy and fast to get going on the app. And so we wanted you to be able to download it, open it, and then just be in the experience without having to go through a long sign-up flow. We also wanted to create an experience where 
you could get information that was going to be highly relevant to you without giving up a lot of information about yourself. And so the approach that we took is when it comes to personalization, you can approach it one of two ways. You can know a lot about the person you're personalizing for, or you can know a lot about the types of sources and content that you are presenting them. And we took that latter approach, which is quite different from what other companies and products in the space do, which are much more focused on understanding the user. And, and that understanding of the user requires intrusive practices vis-a-vis -vis that user's privacy. Whereas the approach that we're taking where we try to understand everything about that content itself requires much less invasive, a much less invasive approach to privacy. And so that's really what, what we focused on. And I think we've created an experience that does feel highly personalized and at the same time doesn't require the user to, to give much information up about themselves. No, I, I think like that was one of the things I think that fascinated me the most when I was using the app is like, I'm, there's no social graph. Right. And I don't right. need like, and you're not being tracked. And I know like Apple's kind of the big company right now promoting and pushing privacy. Um, and, and I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it, but I just want to get your thoughts on just to play devil's advocate a little bit. Like it would be a lot easier for you guys to monetize if you uh, like if people had to sign up and you were collecting more data about them, correct? Well, again, the, the monetization piece is, is something that we're not at yet. So we really think about it more from a what's a great experience, because if you build a great experience, you're going to be able to yeah, you can essentially build a, a big business off of that product down the road. Sure. Um, and so I think both of these approaches are, are hard. They're hard in different ways. The approach that we took is, is certainly difficult. We happen to have a lot of expertise in that area of content understanding. And so it also made a lot of sense for us to, to take that approach. And I think okay. it's really worked. No, that, that makes sense. So I'm curious then, how did you guys fund and build the first few versions of this? Did you self-fund? Did you uh, raise some money or walk us through that? Yeah, so my co-founders and I have been doing this for quite a long time. And over the course of our entrepreneurial careers, we've had the privilege to work with some really great investors. And so when we decided to build this, we approached some of those investors and raised an initial round of, of capital to, to get the product going. Because at the end of the day, what we're building is somewhat capital intensive because we're going out, we're crawling the web, we need to store a lot of data about this content that we're ingesting. We need to run quite complicated machine learning models and, and all of that costs money. And we have to be able to hire a really world-class team, which, which we've done. So it was important to us to, to go out and, and find some financial partners who 
believed in our vision and, and shared that vision uh, to, to come along for the ride with us. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious then, are you guys going to kind of stick with news? Or are you going to start pulling in other content or you don't really know? You'll see where it goes from here. Yeah, so we definitely have a vision that encompasses much more than traditional news. We really see it as offering new information on, on any interest that you might have. But the key there is new information. So we're really focused on this real-time case, which for, for this purpose, maybe we could just talk about the past week or so of information. We're sure. not looking to give you historical accounts of what happened during World War II, for instance. This is really about what's happening right now that you're gonna that aligns with your interests. So that might be sports, that might be gaming, that might be beauty or fashion, it might be politics. Uh, but it's not really social information. So it's not what your friends are up to. It's right. it's information about this stuff that's happening in the world that aligns with your interests. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious though. Obviously, like you said, you've done this a bunch of times. And how do you see the space kind of playing out? Because, um, you know, obviously Google and Facebook right now are, are fighting with Australia around news. And it seems like we're going through this kind of revolution a little bit around people want more privacy. People want the latest and, and most relevant and real Kind of news and information but like where do you see the space do you think we're at the beginning where do you kind of see the health and and potential where we're going to go in in the kind of this whole space i love the view that we're sort of always at the beginning no no matter how many products or competitors or well developed we think the space is whatever space that might be it's always sort of at the beginning of it and that was true when Google was started. It certainly didn't feel like we were at the beginning of the search space prospectively when Google was founded or that we were at the beginning of social media when, when Facebook was founded. There had been plenty of prior companies. It's only in retrospect when a category-defining company comes along that it that it subsequently feels like we were at the beginning of the space. But I think that we're, we're definitely still very early here in this space. In terms of what I see, it's a little bit hard to say. I think the election and, and the political climate of the past four years have certainly changed things a lot because more than ever, it feels like we're living in non-overlapping information realities uh, where people have a lot more difficulty now agreeing on a shared set of facts. Sure. And so there's companies that cater to these non-shared sets of, of facts. And we certainly have, I think, a pretty mainstream perspective on 
on what those facts might be. We've seen recently a number of products get traction, which cater to what might equitably be called alternative facts. We, we don't do that. And whether that is a long-term trend is, I hope it's not because I think it, it doesn't create a healthy political climate, but it's, it's hard to say. Some of the, that traction I think was, was really strong right following the election and has petered out largely from what I'm seeing, whether that's going to come back again, I don't know. I think that what we've seen is that people are largely distrustful of any one isolated view. And this isn't really about mainstream media versus not mainstream media. It's just that people want to get multiple perspectives. And that that idea is core to how we built River. We built this for people who want to triangulate multiple points of view to build trust. And so we're not just going to show you one perspective on a story. We're going to make it very easy for you to see what everybody who's written about this story has written about it. And we're going to use various measures to rank those different perspectives relative to one another. So we so you get the most credible, the most informative ones first, but you can kind of keep going and, and see what, what different people have said. And at the end of that, I think you get a real understanding of what has happened out there in the world or what do people, what do most people agree has happened? And, and then you use that to inform your opinion. No, that's interesting. Cause I think, I know it, it kind of still, I find it always kind of fascinating when people read one side of something and then form their opinion. You're kind of like, well, but what about this? It's like, well, it, it's, it's always kind of fascinating to me. So it's cool that you guys allow people to do that. But I, I'm curious though, like I said, you've, you've obviously done this a bunch of times and you're, you're solving, like, it sounds simple, but what you guys are building is actually really challenging. And hence why you mentioned you have to collect all this data and stuff like that. And then another layer on top of that is the privacy side of that is adds a whole other layer of complexity. But what advice do you give kind of young entrepreneurs that are looking to maybe not create something in, in the same space as you, but just something that's, you know, privacy focused, because I think it's going to really matter to a lot of people in the, in the coming years. So in terms of, advice that I, I like to give people. One is this, it's always early or it's never too late advice. And I'd often err on the side of it feeling, if you're going to start something, I think it's actually a good feeling for it to feel like it's already too late for that to succeed. Because the biggest problems I see with people starting stuff is that if you're going to get timing wrong, you're almost always too early, not too late. And so sure. I think if you feel like you're too late, that's actually a good sign. Another good sign, and, and this is paradoxical, but I've observed that the things that tend to work the best are the ones 
that most people don't think are going to be good ideas. If everybody immediately gets what you're doing and says, that's great, that's really needed before they've ever seen the product when it's just an idea, those are the things that I've tended to see not work out. Because if something's so obviously a good idea and yet doesn't exist, there's usually a good reason for it. So the good ideas, the actually good ideas are the ones that it feels like it's too late, right? And so nobody's building it because the market's too competitive or it just seems dumb. The first version of Snapchat was very much like that. Nobody thought there was a big market for an app that allowed you to send disappearing messages. So nobody else built that because right. it didn't sound like a super great idea, but it was a super great idea. And so that's the type of advice that, that I like to, to give. I think another key thing is that products end up being an average of their features and not the sum of their features. So really focus on having a couple really great features. You want to nail that core use case, and then you don't really want to add much else to it. So if you look at what we've built, it has very few screens. There's not a lot of different features, but I think we've really nailed the ones that that we have. And the response seems to seems to bear that out. And so thinking about what I would tell people about building things with privacy in mind is that it may seem that, I don't know, everybody's doing that now, or it's too trendy, I have to go in a different direction. I think it's, it's not too late to do that. And figure out a really great core don't have a million different features that that you're adding that you're adding on and you need to compete by being by offering something different not by offering more than what's already out there yeah i think that's really good advice and obviously if you think like instagram or whatsapp or some of the biggest apps in the app stores right now they don't do a million things they do one or two things really well and then you either have to get out and use a different app to do certain things, or they've kind of slowly trickled in some features, but for the most part, they've stayed very true to what they're trying to do. Obviously, that's a lot trickier if you're building something for enterprise or, or something like that, or it can be, but it, it is good to keep that in mind, right? That sometimes like adding in every bell and whistle, or at least maybe you add it kind of as a secondary function. Out, function. Yeah, once you've, found product market fit and you have millions of users, then you start to add in other things. And so Facebook is a great example of this where Facebook now has a bazillion features. Sure. And, and even Snapchat has quite a lot. Snapchat has really become the operating system for the 13 to 24 year olds. You could do most things that, that you'd want to do. But I think when you're starting something new, it's you can't compare yourself to a product that's 10 years old and try to right. create feature parity. That's a recipe for failure. So you need to start the way that those successful products started, which is by having very few features, but by having that experience offer something fundamentally different to what's out there. 
Sure. And then iterating over the, you know, coming weeks, months, years, et cetera. And that, that complexity is what ultimately the, the complexity that ends up being inherent to any mature product is ultimately what creates opportunities for new startups to build something really streamlined and simple and easy to use. I think about it like those Swiss army knives. Yeah. You, know, you have the ones that can get an inch thick and they have everything in there. Yeah. And if you think about how long it takes you to achieve your goal, whatever that might be, it, it might be opening a wine bottle. It might be cutting a piece of cheese. Now you've got to go through all those different little gadgets that are in that Swiss army knife to find the one that you want versus opening your drawer and there's the knife and there's the corkscrew and there are these very purpose-built experiences. I think the opportunity ends up for, for new startups, you're that, you know, you just build the best version of a knife or the best version of a corkscrew. And then you market it to people who are really interested in having a great knife or a great corkscrew, as opposed to this tool that, that solves every possible use case, but doesn't necessarily do any one of them all that great. Interesting. I've never heard it compared like, like that and it makes total sense right like we use stuff every day that's like one tool for one job and that's it right and i think yeah you're right people forget that a lot of the times because i think everybody especially when they're coming out of the gate want as many users as possible so they try to cram as many features in as possible where it's actually doing them a disservice yeah totally interesting so then in the past and even on river you have a roadmap obviously you're probably getting feature requests how do you decide which direction to go or not go then because that's got to be challenging based on what we just talked about yeah so the north star is always how is this feature going to fit into this, this hole that we're building. Cause we think about it as, as a unified experience. And so anything that we add has to make the entire experience better in some sure. way. And so we look at data, we look at data about how people are using the product. Currently we run lots of experiments. So we come up with ideas, which may be Somebody on our team had an idea. It might be a feature request we received from a user that we thought was worth testing, and, and we'll roll that out and, and see how people respond to it versus the, the status quo experience in the service. And we try to understand, and this is a combination of data and also using our gut and our judgment from having worked on these sorts of products for a really long time about what's going to be really impactful, how's something going to play with all the other things that, that we've created around the experience to, to move it to the next level. But I think the, the biggest opportunities are always the things that, are, that people aren't asking for. If somebody knows to ask for something, 
it's usually not the thing that's going to make or break the product. And there's usually other ways to do it. So a great example of this is a read it later feature. And okay. we get requests for that all the time. Twitter gets requests for that all the time. Facebook. There's also a million third-party services that can integrate with ours and, and with those other services like Pocket, for instance, sure. yeah. that allow you to do that. And so while to some extent it, it certainly is, you know, this read it later functionality is something people want to use. We need to ask ourselves, is that something that we want to tackle ourselves or is it something that's best left to these third-party services? And in that case, so far, we felt like it's best left to those third-party services. No, I think that's a really good example, right? Because then people can kind of do whatever they want and create their own use cases. And in a lot of cases, they don't have to relearn something new. It's like if you're already using Pocket and they add River, it's like, well, if you want to store an article to read later, well, just put it in the app you're already using, right? Right. And it comes down to is a feature like that something that you want to have six different versions of, or is it a layer that should sit on top of all the products that you're already using? Sure. And I think there's a lot to be said for having that be a layer that sits across a lot of things, but who knows, maybe we'll add it one day. Sure. No, but I actually think that's a really good point, right? It's, it's nice that if you use, like if you have one central place for all the stuff, instead of every app you use has a read it or save for later. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm curious though, is there any other advice you'd give to people that are maybe like obviously with the pandemic and everything that's going on to actually help them at least start, maybe that's not quit full time or go full time into something. Maybe it's just like pick out an idea for a couple hours a week kind of thing. Like what advice do you give to people that are scared to start, especially now that there's a pandemic happening? So one that I give to everybody because it comes up almost with every new entrepreneur. Sure. Is I, people are really scared at the beginning that somebody is going to steal their idea. Totally. Yeah. That's that's the the one that I want to deprogram people from. Nobody is stealing your idea. First of all, any idea that's worthwhile is almost certainly already being worked on by multiple different people and sure. so these things tend to be in the air, right? As soon as Warby Parker comes out, Everybody has the idea for Warby Parker for X and Warby Parker for Y. And those people often feel like they're the only one who thought of Warby Parker for perfume or something like that. And they don't want to tell people about their idea. So one, it's just not a very practical consideration because it's so important to get feedback from people on what you're working on. And nobody is trying to sign NDAs with you. And so I think it's really important to tell everybody about what you're working on and that everybody doesn't have to be journalists, for instance. You, you don't have to sure. be doing podcast interviews about this nascent idea that you have. There's that That's not 
likely to to help you but talking to people who have expertise who've been entrepreneurs and so forth about your ideas a really great way to 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 help you develop that and so you have to be willing to have that conversation and not so worried that people are going to steal it. And if it's something that's so easily stolen, at the end of the day, it's all about your version of it, your execution totally. of it. And no two people are gonna build something in the exact same way. And those differences are what's gonna give you a shot of success. So I encourage people always to tell people about what they're working on. And I also encourage people to just start building and what that looks like is different from for different people, but it might be starting to sketch out what the flow of, of this app looks like. It's really nice when you're having those conversations with people who you're now no longer worried are going to steal your idea, that you have something to show them, some prototypes, and they can be very rough. It might be a sketch on a piece of paper, but people find it very helpful to see something rather than just hear about it. And you don't have to be a designer in order to do that. Or you might do interviews with people to, to get feedback on your idea. All those I think are really great ways to, to get started. The other thing is to not worry about passing by some or another gatekeeper. One of the great things about social media is that we don't have to rely on the New York Times writing about us for people to figure out what we're doing anymore. And so just go, or, or for instance, if you want to be a, I don't know, recipe, influencer. It used to be probably that you had to get hired at some place like Bon Appetit. Now you can just go on YouTube or TikTok and just start doing the thing and see what happens. Sure. And I see a lot of people trying to wait for somebody to give them permission to get started. And so what I encourage people to do is to not wait for permission to do something. Give yourself permission to experiment and, and just build the thing and put it out there and figure out channels where you can succeed without needing to have somebody else bless your idea and take it straight to the people who are gonna use it and see if it resonates. No, I, I actually think that's probably some of the best advice, right? Because it, it's so many people are just scared and it's just like, the, Everybody that's ever achieved anything that they set out to do just decided to start one day. It sounds really stupid, but like that's the key to the whole thing of being successful is you're like, you just need to start one day. Yeah, I, I think that's that's it. And a lot of people have suffered in the past year. A lot of jobs have been lost. And, and sometimes that's actually the perfect the perfect opportunity for people and, and use that as an opportunity because quitting your job is, is scary. If you, if your job just disappears out from under you in some ways, a favor has been done for you. If, if you're entrepreneurial and you can just use that as an opportunity to, to just get started and, and overcome that, 
overcome what might have been a very scary process. No, I 100% I agree with you. But we're, we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, River, and anything else you want to mention? Yeah, so I'm on every social platform at Jeremy H. Fisher, at Jeremy H. Fisher. And then you can go to river.app and learn more about the product, the company, and you'll have a link to download it in Apple's App Store there as well. Perfect, Jeremy. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Yeah, it was a pleasure. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.